Welcome to this presentation of the First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 855. As we enter into the Advent season and prepare for Christmas, we are continuing uh, through this initial uh, section of the book of Luke, which is leading to the birth of Jesus. And last week as we started Luke, we saw that this book is uh, a well-researched and accurate account of the life and ministry of Jesus. This is exactly what this is. And uh, we are seeing in Luke how God's promises in the Old Testament are being fulfilled in him. And this morning we're going to continue to see that uh, as the birth of Jesus is announced and his significance is explained. And so we're in Luke chapter 1. And we're going to pick up beginning in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So last week, we were introduced to a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And we saw that Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful followers of the Lord, and yet they had not been able to have children, at least until the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah in the temple and, and announced that he would have a son who would be the long-awaited messenger who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. But because he did not believe God's promise, Zechariah has been struck mute and unable to talk until his son, whose name will be John, is born. And then true to the Lord's word, we saw last week in verse 24 that Elizabeth did, in fact, conceive a child. As we pick up again here in verse 26, we fast forward six months later, and the scene moves from the temple in Jerusalem, which is the very center of life in Israel, to a, a, an obscure little town about 65 miles north in the middle of nowhere. So Luke says that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And so Nazareth is a small town that is not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. It is not referred to anywhere in other ancient literature or historical records. Uh, it is, uh, by our best estimates, it was a town of about 500 people at the beginning of the first century. So they didn't have a gas station, probably didn't have a stop sign, it was, the, it was the definition of an insignificant place. Right, nobody important ever came from Nazareth. Nothing important ever happened in Nazareth. That is, at least, until now. So more specifically, we see in verse 27 that God sends Gabriel to a young woman named Mary. And twice in this verse, Luke emphasizes Mary's status as a virgin, meaning that she is unmarried and, according to Jewish law, expected to be chaste at this time in her life. However, we also see that Mary is betrothed to a man named Joseph, who Luke tells us is of the house of David, and that detail should always get our attention, of the house of David. Joseph is a man who belongs to the royal lineage and, under the right circumstances, would have a legitimate claim to the throne. 
So Mary and Joseph are betrothed. This means that they are engaged to be married, but ancient Jewish engagement was a little bit different than modern American engagement. And so typically Jewish couples would be engaged for a year, during which time uh, both partners would be preparing themselves for marriage. But under Jewish law, they were already considered bound to one another. Uh, in the, uh, today's world, you might get engaged and then decide later to call it off. But in the ancient world, to be engaged or betrothed was considered as good as marriage. And, and uh, to break that off would be considered divorce. The only exception, uh, the only aspect that was not fully marriage is that the couple was not allowed to live together or to relate to one another as married until their marriage was consummated. And so once you were betrothed, you were committed. And any relational activity outside of that relationship would, was considered adultery and could be prosecuted as such. And so this is the background information for the situation that Gabriel is sent into. And we'll see what happens next as we pick up beginning in verse 28. It says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so Gabriel appears to Mary, and as he greets her, he refers to her as, O favored one. And he tells her that the Lord is with her. And this communicates that Mary is someone who, who God has set his blessing on. Someone that he has set his favor on. And it could also have connotations that the Lord has chosen Mary for a specific task. Right, but despite this, this positive greeting, Mary has no idea what's going on here. Uh, Luke tells us that she was greatly troubled and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And so last week we saw that Zechariah was troubled when he saw Gabriel. He was afraid. But here we see that Mary is greatly troubled. Right? Stuff like this doesn't happen in Nazareth. Right? Gabriel probably looks intimidating as an angel. Mary has no idea who he is or what his intentions are. What does she want or what does he want with her? But Gabriel reassures her and tells her not to be afraid, and he repeats that he has come to her because the Lord has set his favor on her. She has found favor with God. And then in verse 31, Gabriel explains the exact nature of God's favor towards Mary. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And so the favor of God in Mary's life is tied to the fact that she is going to conceive and have a son. But like the description of Zechariah's son last week, we see that this isn't going to be just any child. In fact, this is going to be a child unlike any other. Gabriel goes on to say, he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, just on the surface, it should be obvious what this means. Right? While Zechariah's son will be the messenger who prepares the way for the Messiah, Mary's son is going to be 
the Messiah. Right? Gabriel makes this clear in no uncertain terms. His description of Jesus being the promised Davidic king who reigns over God's people is just dripping with Old Testament prophecy. For starters, the Lord made his covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and promised that he would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Of course, it had been 600 years since a king had ruled over Israel, and so the people had been longing and waiting for the day when God would restore the house of David and, and establish the king once again. And the prophets gave the people hope that this would happen. And so in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In Jeremiah 33, 15, the Lord promises, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Or in Amos chapter 9, the Lord says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. You see, for centuries, God's people have been waiting for the fulfillment of these promises. And, and here, Gabriel declares that the time has come. Mary has truly found favor with God. Out of all of the women in human history, she has been chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. And we'll see how Mary responds to this news as we pick up again, beginning in verse 34. It says, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So as Mary hears this announcement from Gabriel, this is a lot to take in, probably a little bit more than what she was able to wrap her mind around in the moment. But perhaps most of all, she's just confused. And so she asks, How is this going to happen since I'm a virgin? Right, while she's engaged to be married to Joseph and would presumably be having children soon after that, something about Gabriel's message has indicated to her that this conception is going to take place before their marriage is finalized. And so this is confusing. Mary knows how the world works, and she knows she doesn't have any reason to think that she's going to be pregnant anytime soon. And so she's legitimately curious as to how this is going to work. And then in verse 35, we see that Mary's suspicion is correct. This is, in fact, going to take place before her marriage to Joseph is finalized. And Gabriel explains how it will work. He says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Okay, so God is going to supernaturally cause Mary to conceive apart from a human father. 
Uh, we need to be clear that this is not relational language. Okay? This is not indicating that God and Mary are going to have a baby together. All right? Sometimes people from other religious backgrounds get hung up on this particular point. That is not what we are, are led to believe here. This is creation language. And so you may remember from back in Genesis that when God creates the world in the very beginning, the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters. And this is similar to that. In the same way that God originally created everything out of nothing, so now he will cause Mary to conceive a son. And because of this, Gabriel explains at the end of verse 35 that the child will be called Holy and the Son of God. And this explanation begins to make a little more sense out of part of what Gabriel said earlier. Back in verses 32 and 33, he said that the child would be great and called the Son of the Most High, and that his reign would be eternal. And the issue is that all of those descriptors are only applicable to God himself. In the Bible, only God is ever called great without any other qualifiers. Right? To be the, the son of the Most High, or the son of God, as we see here in verse 35, means that this child will share in the nature and identity of God, in the same way that a human child shares in the identity and nature of its human parents. Right? And <clears throat> likewise, the, the idea of an eternal reign eliminates the possibility of this being any mere mortal, because all people eventually die. Right? And so, what we see is that the way that this child is described and the way he is going to be conceived both point to the fact that he will be more than a mere man. This, this child is going to be divine. And what we see is that in the person of Jesus, God himself is going to save his people. Now, there are lots of big theological terms that, that we can use to, to get at what uh, Gabriel is talking about here. You may hear people talk about the incarnation or the hypostatic union or, or lots of other very interesting things that we can talk about later that you can go look up on your own. But if we want to zoom out and look at the big picture, what we see here in, in seed form is the triune God acting to save his people. And so the Father is sending the Son into the world and the Holy Spirit is causing the son to be conceived in Mary's womb. And in this way, Jesus will exist physically as fully God and fully man. He will have both a human and a divine nature. All right, and this gets to the whole point of who Jesus is going to be and what he is going to do. Now, this is, this is getting ahead in the story, but it's the only way to fully appreciate what Gabriel is saying here. You see, while, while Jesus is going to be born, he is ultimately born so that he can die. The salvation that God's people need is ultimately a salvation from sin and from its consequences. We need to be rescued from God's righteous judgment against us for our rebellion against him. You see, because God is just, he will judge sin. Because, and, and the Bible makes the reality of hell very clear for those who persist in their rebellion. But because God is loving, he has also made a way for us to be saved. And that is by, by sending Jesus into the world to pay the penalty for our sin by dying on the cross in our place and in so doing, experiencing the wrath of God for us. 
And so Jesus had to take on human flesh and be born as a man because only a human can take the place of another human. Right? That's why the animal sacrifices were ultimately insufficient. Right? A, a, only a human can truly be substituted for another human. And only Jesus could save us because a mere man could only take the place of one other person. Right? A life for a life. One person for another person. So because Jesus is fully human, he can serve as a substitutionary sacrifice for God's people. Because Jesus is fully God, his sacrifice has infinite value that is, is able to save all who will place their faith in him. And of course, there is a lot of mystery here. There is only so much that our finite minds can understand about the deep things of God. But what Gabriel is saying here, again, in seed form, Mary's probably not processing all of this, but what he's getting at here is the very foundation of our faith. Now, having said all this, I don't know if angels can read minds, but Gabriel probably suspects that Mary is having a hard time understanding all this, much less believing it. And so in verse 36, he tells her about Elizabeth. We see that she is related to somehow, perhaps a, a cousin or an aunt or something like that. And he explains that Elizabeth has miraculously conceived even in her old age, way beyond the, the, what would be considered possible physically. And he tells her in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now this is a clear allusion to the Lord's words to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 18 when he promised that they would have a son long after what anybody would have considered was humanly, physically possible. And his allusion to Genesis 18 here is designed to inspire faith for Mary in what otherwise would seem to be impossible. And as Mary processes what Gabriel is telling her, she responds in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And she believes the message. She accepts the task that the Lord has given her. Now this is, this is wonderful, uh, but we can't ignore the fact that Mary's obedience to God's plan could prove very costly for her. Right? She's an unmarried Jew who's about to be very obviously pregnant. And Joseph is going to know that it's not his child, and at that point, he's going to have a decision to make. He could call off the marriage and, and abandon Mary to be a single mom in the ancient world with very little resources and few prospects for the future. Even worse, Mary could be prosecuted for adultery according to the law and executed. Or even if Joseph stayed with her, both of their reputations could be tarnished as the people in their community simply assume that they must have broken the, the, the <clears throat> the the, they, they broke the customs of their engagement before it was appropriate. And so we have to understand that while God has given Mary a tremendous honor here, it also comes with much difficulty. There are going to be some hard conversations and some difficult choices for her to make in the, in the months and even the years to come. This reminds us that following God's plan for our lives does not mean that things will always be easy. Right? Sometimes being exactly where God would have us to be brings us right into the middle of difficulty, suffering, and even challenges. Right? Mary has absolutely no way 
of understanding everything that this is going to involve for her. But with great faith, she trusts that if this is what the Lord is calling her to do, then he is going to supply and provide her with what she needs to see it through. And at the end of the passage, Luke notes that Gabriel receives her response and then departs. And so as we, in our passage this morning, we continue to see how God's promises are being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. As as Gabriel announces to Mary that she is going to give birth to the Messiah. And I have to be honest, it it made the, the hair on the back of my neck stand up as I was reading and studying this week. Because if you, if you think about it, God's people have been waiting for this for centuries, hundreds if not thousands of years. The prophets have promised that this day is coming. And then now, here in our passage this morning, God finally looks at Gabriel and he says, it's time. And he sends him, or uh, he sends Gabriel to Nazareth to find Mary and explain what's about to happen. Of course, from our position in salvation history, the king has come, right? From Luke's perspective, we're looking forward, but from our position, we look backward as the God-man. Jesus has come, and he has defeated sin through his life, death, and resurrection, and made salvation available for all who will submit to his kingly rule by repenting of their sin and placing all of their faith in him. And just as we sang earlier this morning, come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended and took on flesh to ransom us. Church, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. And so this morning, let's worship our great God and Savior. Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.